0: You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good to see everybody here once again. um, I am uh, once again excited to preach. I don't know if I'm ever not excited to preach. If I am never not excited to preach, I won't tell you. But when I say I am, I definitely am. And I say it every week because it's true. I'm, I'm excited to preach. And, and our, our sermon this weekend uh, is simply called Citizens of Heaven. And it comes out of our, our gospel reading that we're going to be looking at this week. Now, just before we get into this, I have to show you a clip. I've been told that I shouldn't do this. Uh, a couple times, but I'm, I'm just intent. I'm stubborn. And I got to show you this clip, but I have to set it up. Um, I, I'm i part of two different small groups here at Village. One of them is a, a Santa Clarita based group. There's quite a few of us that live up there. And so we get together in the fall for a few Sundays and and then also in the spring, different times. So if you're in Santa Clarita, or, Clarita or you want to be a part of our group, I don't care where you live. If you want to ride up there, you can. Uh, you can always sign up for it. But we had a, we had a good crew. And, uh, but anyway, we're right now in the middle of a particular curriculum. And part of the curriculum is it shows us every week. We watch like four or five different short clips from all these different Jesus movies, Jesus films from, from decades past, going back to the silent film era. Uh, So there's a bunch of these some of them are really obscure. I've never heard of them I got to show you this clip just before we get into it Um, It's from the film son of man that was produced by the BBC network way back in 1969 and it has to do with the passage we're going to be looking at now um, I'm showing this to you not because I want you to think well this is what Jesus is actually like because you're gonna see he's gonna fly off the handle and and Uh, You know, obviously Jesus said tough things, but this guy is like out of control. And uh, so I just want to show you this because our group got a real kick out of it. We just laughed when we saw it, and I'm hoping you will too. So it's a minute and a half. Go ahead and watch this clip real quick. Give us a sign. A sign. What? If you are from God, that is, give us a sign. Master? Yes, yes, come on. Give us a sign. sign. Uh, what sort of sign? Well, if you are from God. Uh-huh. I say if. Come here. Come a bit closer. Do you want a sign? If you are from God, that is. A thunderbolt! Will that do? Look how high I'll Temple policeman, I could crackle the flames through your limbs, temple policeman. No, no! Only a godless generation asks for a sign. Do you want to see the corn before us planted? Hypocrite. Look, I know you for what you are. Master, master, should we pay taxes to the Romans? Should we acknowledge the rule of the heathen? Well, tell us what to do! Tell us! See how they try to me? It's just that you can tell us what uh, to do. Here yeah, yeah, yeah. we got a coin. What? A coin, a coin. No, 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 no. Have you got a coin? Yes. <clears throat> and whose head is that on the coin? Caesar's. No. Huh. Well, now you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And you give to God what belongs to God. And shut up! So, I'm glad you guys got a sense of humor, I I love, I just, all right, so, uh, that's the passage we're going to look at, Uh, was it just me or does this guy look a little like Charles Manson? (laughs) Too close of a resemblance there, but anyway. Um, We're going to be looking at uh, this particular episode that comes to us out of Matthew 22. And I want to break it up in half, make a couple remarks, and then we'll finish the passage and and pray as we jump into this. But Matthew chapter 22, let's look at this beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees met together to find a way to trap Jesus in his words. So I, I want you to notice these guys are not sincere they're trying to trip him up and it says in verse 16 they sent their disciples along with the supporters of Herod to him teacher they said we know that you are genuine and that you teach God's way as it really is we know you are not swayed by people's opinions because you don't show favoritism so tell us what you think Does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this was one of the most hot button, controversial topics in first century Israel. Should we as Jews pay taxes to Caesar or not? As soon as they would have asked this question, the whole crowd would have fell hush Intention tension would have just filled the air because everyone knows whatever he says next, a lot hangs on it, you know? And it's really a clever question for these pretenders to ask, because however Jesus responds to this question, seemingly, he's going to get himself in trouble. On one hand, if Jesus says, yes, we should pay our taxes to Caesar, he's going to lose a lot of his supporters, a lot of this crowd, uh, because they all believe he's Messiah. And as we've talked about in previous sermons, their vision of Messiah, they kind of thought the Messiah would come and be a revolutionary and lead them to overpower Rome. So, if Jesus says, yeah, we ought to pay our taxes to Caesar, well, it kind of sounds like he's saying we ought to support Rome. We ought to support the very government we're supposed to be overthrowing. You know, it doesn't make sense. And it would have disillusioned people. This would have been a deal breaker for a lot of folks. On the other hand, if Jesus were to say, No, we should not pay taxes to Caesar. Obviously, these spies can just go right to the nearest Roman authority and report it and say, this guy over here is telling us not to pay our taxes, and then he's going to get himself into real trouble. So it seems like no matter what Jesus does here, uh, they have him backed into a corner, and it's going to really hurt him. So what is poor Jesus going to do? Well, it turns out Jesus is pretty smart and as he always does he finds a way out of their trap so let's look how he responds in verse 18 knowing their evil motives jesus replied why do you test me you hypocrites show me the coin used to pay the tax and they brought him a denarian which was just a normal copper coin in the first century he says whose image and inscription Is this, he asked. And of course, every coin had the imprint of Caesar. And they said, Caesar's, they replied. Then he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. When they heard this, they were astonished and they departed. Let's pause and pray. Now, Lord, as we dive into this story with our not just our intellect, but as we surrender our entire being to you in this moment, Lord, I pray that we would apprehend whatever message you want us to receive. Sweep aside every disruption, every interruption, every distraction to divine communication. And we invite you, Lord, including myself, we invite you, Lord, to speak to the very core of our being and challenge us. Challenge us to become faithful in our ongoing lives and in our ongoing worship unto you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to show you a picture of a Roman denarius from this era of the first century. This is precisely the same coin uh, or a similar coin. This uh, This looks like Augustus Caesar. I'm not judging it on the image, but just looking, you could see Augustus on the left side of the the coin, but this is the kind of coin that would have been referred to in the story. And uh, you'll notice that it bears the image of Caesar as every Roman coin would have bared uh, Caesar's image. It was kind of a common way of uh, spreading Roman propaganda, letting people know who's in charge. Like, yeah, this may be your money, but we actually own it all. Everything belongs to us. And so it's a form of Roman propaganda. They would stamp each and every one of these coins with the, the Roman emperor's image on it. And there's a couple things that I want you to know about this. Number one, and it's important if we're going to interpret this correctly. Number one, you need to know that to a devout Jew in the first century, this is idolatrous. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a violation of the second commandment that we're not to make graven images of ourselves. And so every devout Jew in the first century would have viewed this as an example of idolatry. By the way, this is why they have money changers in the temple. You read about that episode where Jesus overturns money-changing tables. Well, the whole reason they had money-changing tables is because of this. You know, let's say that uh, there's a pilgrim from up in Galilee who wants to come down to Jerusalem for uh, Passover, Well, if you're going to take part in Passover, you've got to have a lamb to sacrifice. Well, it's kind of inconvenient, as you can imagine, to bring a lamb all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. So for that reason, uh, during seasons like Passover, there would have been places nearby the temple where you could purchase a lamb, but they didn't want to fool with this kind of coinage. I mean, it just seems kind of weird to submit one of these idolatrous coins to pay for a sacrifice. And uh, so they had money-changing tables where you could take your Roman coinage and change it over into temple shekels, and that way they could avoid that whole uh, dilemma of conscience. So to first-century Jews, devout Jews, this kind of thing, this is the height of idolatry and, and arrogance, really. But the other thing and the more important thing that you need to know is that all Jews like us today, all Jews in the first century believed that we as human beings, we uniquely bear the image of God. We bear, Yahweh has stamped his image upon us. And so Jesus holds up this coin. What he's doing, he's saying, are we Jews who believe that we all bear God's image, are we really going to fight and divide over this political issue of how much of this idolatrous metal we're supposed to keep? If it's got Caesar's image, as far as I'm concerned, give it all to him. But the question we need to be concerned with is are we giving to God what bears his image? And that is our entire being. Are we giving to God our entire self? It's a genius answer that really subverts the whole question and, and shames the people who are asking it. But here's, what I, here's where I want us to go here with this tonight. This episode illustrates to us once again that Jesus did not come to settle all of our political questions and resolve all of our political disputes. Now, politics is very important, I believe, because what is politics? Politics is the arrangement by which we as human beings dwell together as a society. Do you think God's concerned about that? I think he is. I think God's deeply concerned with how we as human beings live together as communities and societies. So it's very, very important. We'll talk even more about that uh, in a little bit. But regardless, Jesus didn't come to give us the right form of government or to give us a list, a slate of all of the right political positions. He He didn't come to give us a new and improved political regime. No, Jesus came to establish a entirely different kind of kingdom, a kingdom that is not from this world, and it doesn't look like any of the kingdoms of the world, even the best of them, and if you belong to Jesus, if you've pledged yourself to Jesus, you are a citizen of that kingdom, and it's that kingdom to which your entire allegiance belongs. I want to show you just a a few verses from the New Testament to illustrate this theme straight out of the Scriptures. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, look at what Paul says. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Just notice the singular there. He doesn't say one of our citizenships is in heaven. He says our citizenship is in heaven. A couple chapters earlier in verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, whatever happens as citizens of heaven live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Peter takes it even further when he says, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. You know, to be a foreigner is the opposite of being a citizen. We're aliens. We're immigrants in this present order. In the next chapter, he takes it even further. He says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. An exile is someone who used to be a citizen and they got kicked out. So you see this constant theme, uh, not just here, but elsewhere throughout the New Testament. Now, most of the people listening to this sermon this weekend, whether you're in this room or, or folks who will watch or listen to it later, most of us, if not all of us, are citizens of the United States of America. And that is your legal citizenship. And I want you to know, don't go and renounce that just after you hear this sermon. Uh, The Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen, wasn't he? And in fact, he used that to his advantage when it benefited him, right? So you may have a legal citizenship of a particular nation and all of that's fine and good. Don't give that up. But what you do need to know from the New Testament witness is that your true citizenship is in the realm of God. And as far as God's concerned, you and I are actually foreigners and exiles living in this land. And we are to think that way. We are to live that way. We are to march to the beat of a different drummer because we belong to a different kingdom and a different king and a different Lord. To say Jesus is Lord and to make Jesus Lord means he's the Lord over everything. And if Jesus is Lord over everything, that means he is in competition with no one else and nothing else. He said it as clearly as he could say it when he says no one can serve two masters. People may think that we can, but, but really you always one of them always ends up winning out over the other one in the end. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. He says, There are many gods and many lords. Notice the lowercase there. He's talking about earthly kings, earthly rulers, earthly lords. There are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, believers, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. You know, in this present day and age, many people follow all kinds of different lords and rulers and authorities. In Russia, people follow Vladimir Putin. In the Ukraine, people follow Volodymyr Zelensky. In North Korea, people follow Kim Jong-un. In China, people follow Xi Jinping. Here in the United States, people follow Joe Biden, or before that, Donald Trump, or whoever else. People follow all kinds of kings and lords and rulers, but what you need to know is that if you're a citizen of heaven, present tense, not future tense, present tense, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you only actually have one ruler, You only actually have one master, one Lord, one true president, one true king, and it's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, and he is to be in competition with no one else. Now that doesn't mean that we are to flaunt our liberty and break all of the laws of the government, because actually three times in the New Testament, we're told to submit to the governing authorities. In fact, there are three things that the New Testament tells us to do vis-a-vis the government. Number one, we are to obey the laws. Number two, we are to pay our taxes. And number three, pray for peace, pray for our leaders. So we're called very clearly to submit to the governing authorities. But the reason we do that, listen very carefully, the reason we do that, it's not because government has intrinsic authority over us because it doesn't. And it's also not because we believe government is so good and so true and so wise and noble and we're so fond of our leaders. I promise you not a single Christian in the first century would have felt that way about Rome and Caesar. No, the reason we submit to the governing authorities is because our one master in life tells us to do so. And the primary reason he tells us to do so is because it's not worth causing problems over. You're just inviting trouble on yourself, which will interfere with the one thing we're supposed to be doing, and that is participating in the work of God. Amen? So that's why, hypothetically, if government were to ever require us to do something or not do something that violates the call of Christ upon us to dwell in love for God and dwell in love for our fellow humanity, if, if government were to ever require us to do something that conflicts with the call of Christ upon our lives, we are under, un, under God's authority to break that law. That's exactly what happens with Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. Look at what happens in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, they are, uh, they are spreading the good news of Jesus as the crucified risen Messiah of Israel and the king of the planets, king of the heavens and the earth, and they're proclaiming this. And the local government of Jerusalem is cracking down and saying, you guys are not allowed to do this anymore. And look at how Peter and John respond. They, Peter and John replied which is right in god's eyes to listen to you or to him you be the judges as for us we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard peter and john are saying you know what we got to obey god and you do whatever you got to do if you got to throw us in prison throw us in prison if you got to beat us beat us if you got to kill us kill us but we got to obey the call of our master, the one who our sole allegiance belongs to, and that's the Lord of the heavens and the earth, Jesus Christ. uh, I've pointed out this book before uh, in a previous sermon. It's a book I've read a couple times called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. Um, Excellent book, no you cannot borrow it because I'll never get it back, but it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's not an easy read. Uh, there are other books that might be easier to read, but I really, really like this one. It talks about how the early church of the first 300 years, what were the factors in the growth of Christianity? A movement that began with 120 people and ends up 300 years later <laughs> becoming so pervasive that the Roman emperor feels pressure to make it the official Roman religion. How did Christianity explode in growth during that 300 year season of time? You know, uh, they they estimate about every decade it grew about 40%. How did that happen? And I'm just, basically the common theme of the book, I mean there's all kinds of factors that the book talks about, but the common theme is just simply that these believers of the first 300 years they really did live faithfully to the call of Christ, to live in sole allegiance unto Him, no matter what it cost them. And um, they did it right. They were, they, you understand, they were a persecuted minority. Christianity was illegal. And they weren't contentious, they weren't cantankerous, they weren't going around mocking and demonizing their leaders, or anything like that. They did it right. They obeyed the laws, they paid their taxes, They prayed for their leaders. They did all of that stuff, but they absolutely refused to do or not do anything that would violate the call of their Lord Jesus. It was to Jesus that they were loyal to above anything else. And there were times when that placed really tough demands upon them. It's hard for you and I to get a grip on this because we live in a free society. But I'll just give you a couple examples. I could give you numerous examples. I'll just give you a couple examples. For one thing, there were seasons during those, that um, era of history. There were seasons in which emperor worship was enforced throughout the empire. Where every single person, with, a few, with some exceptions, but Christians were not an exception, everyone who wasn't an exception, they were required once a year, To go to the nearest Roman temple, take a pinch of incense, throw it into a a fire as sort of like a perfunctory act of worship, and then you had to make a confession with your mouth about Caesar being Lord, uh, a confession of worship unto Caesar. And you had to do that once a year. And it was a requirement. And the early Christians, by and large, said no, because that would violate our allegiance to Christ. You understand how easy it would have been for them to rationalize this and say, man, it's once a year. Let's just go through the motions. We could say it with our mouths and not mean it with our hearts. That would have been so easy. It would have taken all of the pressure off. But they absolutely refused. They said, no, Jesus is our Lord, and it's to him that our worship belongs. Another example, and this would have been much more... um, challenging on a daily basis would have been participating in trade guilds you know in 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 the ancient roman world to participate to be able to work in a certain trade you had to be a part of the guild and you guys many of you understand that some of you are part of guilds so they're probably people part of sag or writers guilds or all these other types of guilds so you know all about that well imagine this in in, in ancient in the ancient roman world Every single one of these trade guilds incorporated some type of Roman deity as their patron god. And the worship of that god was intricately connected to being a part of that guild. And so as a Christian, you're having to make what seems like an impossible choice. I can either join the trade guild, compromise my integrity and my worship of Jesus, and get involved, or at least even just appear to be involved in the worship of a Roman God, and yet be able to feed my family. Or I could say, no, my allegiance once again is unto Christ. I'm not going to be a part of this. And then be willing to suffer the economic and financial hardship And yet, through all of this, these early Christians remained steadfast in their worship of Jesus. They truly lived like foreigners and exiles in the land because they knew that they are foreigners and exiles in the land. And it caused all the people around them to look at them with deep suspicion. They had to bear labels like unpatriotic, ungodly, cowardly, traitors, subversives. And for that reason, during the first three centuries of church history, Christians were ostracized, they were marginalized, they were persecuted in a variety of ways, and occasionally, sometimes, they were even brutally murdered in some of the most barbaric ways that the human mind can imagine. I could tell you stories tonight that would make your skin crawl. And yet, it totally backfired on those oppressors. The more Rome tried to suppress Christianity, the more it exploded. They put these people to death. You know, Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, he said the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more people self-sacrificially uh, give themselves to the pattern of the cross, even in their own brutal death, the more the world around them takes notice and says, who are these people and why are they doing this this is different these people know something they've encountered something i've never encountered and it inspired awe and wonder and it drew people into the mystery of the cross and christianity and christianity exploded as a result and then in the fourth century the worst thing imaginable happened and that is christianity became popular So popular that the Roman Emperor, Constantine, claims that he has a vision. And in this vision, it combined Christianity with nationalistic violence, the first time that had ever happened. And Constantine says that this vision is from God. And sadly, a lot of Christian leaders agreed with him. And so Constantine legalizes Christianity, and then the very next year, he makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, thereby making it illegal to not be a Christian. And the very next year, Christians put their first pagan to death. And on and on and on it goes. I'm not going to recount all of the sordid, ugly, nasty History of of the church. I know some some people don't necessarily like to talk about that But we've got to learn from our history because if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it Now the truth is let me say this throughout all of the ugliness and nastiness There was always a strand of faithful Christians However few they were who truly did embody this Jesus looking countercultural radical kingdom But whenever and wherever Christianity became co-opted by the agenda of the state, whether we're talking about ancient Rome or imperialist Russia or Nazi Germany. Because, you know, a third of the German churches went along with Hitler and became cheerleaders of Nazi socialism. Whenever and wherever that's happened, to whatever degree, Christianity loses its beauty. It loses its distinctiveness. It loses Christ. And it becomes just another ugly version of the kingdom of the world. The craziest thing is that after the 14th century, and to some extent before that, what you have largely is Christians killing other Christians in the name of the state. What's wrong with that picture? Christians slaughtering other Christians, sometimes doing it in the name of Jesus. And if you think that's too absurd to be true, just remember that every year, once a year, we as Americans celebrate one group of christians overpowering another group of christians every fourth of july now i'm proud to be american i don't want to be anything else i'm glad i'm not british and i'm sure the british are glad they're not americans so yay go red white and blue go usa let's all pop fireworks after church i'm all about it but can we just agree can we just agree that there's nothing christian about christians killing other christians No matter what the reason is, that's, that's, that's just nuts. It's absurd. But that's what you get when people ignore Jesus teaching that you cannot serve two masters. Never forget, you are foreigners and exiles living in this land. And your true citizenship is heaven. Therefore, don't get too comfortable in this present order. Don't blend in too easily. Now, none of that is to say that we should not be engaged politically. Quite the contrary, I believe Christians have the right, just like everybody else, to contend in the public marketplace for those ideas that we believe makes for a healthy society, absolutely. And the primary way we do that, not the only way, but the primary way we do that is we embody that alternative society within our own community, within our church and local churches just like this, we embody what society can look like under the reign of Christ. The world ought to be able to look at a local church like ours and say, that's what healthy relationships can look like. That's how the needs of the poor can be met with compassion. That's what the absence of racism looks like. That's how people can engage in business with integrity. Hello. That's how reconciliation takes place when people have failed one another. And on and on it goes. The the, the society around us ought to look at the church and say, how beautiful. How awe-inspiring. How wonderful. I want to be a part of that. It's Sermon on the Mount Christianity, and that's why Jesus is able to say, to the degree that we're living out the values of the Sermon on the Mount, he's able to say, you are the light of the world. Don't hide your light under the bush, let it shine. Because this dark world needs some light, and the only light they're gonna find is in Christ, and the Christ who, who we bear in our lives. So that's the primary way that we witness, that's the primary witness that we are to our culture. That's not to say we aren't engaged politically. But when it comes to the realm of politics, I I want you to know you can certainly prefer one political party over another, I I don't care, but don't forget that your one allegiance is not to any particular party or system, because we don't follow the donkey, we don't follow the elephant, we follow the lamb. Your sole allegiance has got to be to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the President of Presidents, Jesus Christ. Because the day's going to come, remember this, the day's going to come when America and every other nation, when democracy and every other system, when Democrats and Republicans, every other party, and when the presidency and every other office, it's going to come to nothing. It's all going to fade away. It's transitory. It's fleeting. But the kingdom of God and our Lord Jesus Christ rule and reign forever. Put all your eggs in that basket and never divide or compromise your loyalty to the one and only one who is truly Lord and the one and the only one who is truly deserving. Give to God what is God's, and that is your entire self. Amen? All right, stand with me. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.